God, you rule the nations and yet find time to rule our hearts. You sit in glory and yet find time to sit with us. You created us but are never bored with us. God, we are continually dazzled by your holiness, by your righteous ways, and by your control of our days. Now we open your love letter to us. If we could dip our pen in the thoughts of God, your thoughts, we would do it. Yet you have done it for us. Father, I didn't come here to entertain these people sitting before me. I came to open your word, to expose them to your character. I came to awaken affections in them for you. Help me not to fail in that. You have given us through today's passage some hard truths, some scary truths. It could cause confusion or even despair unless your Holy Spirit comes alongside it and shows its beauty. Father, help us to leave, leave today saying we walk through a beautiful text that revealed a beautiful truth about your beautiful and glorious gospel. You have commanded us to believe on Jesus Christ. You have shown us the ugliness of our sin and the loveliness of Christ's perfection. Yet still, like children, we get distracted by shiny things. Satan's things. Show us the fleeting satisfaction of sin and the never-ending satisfaction of Christ. Help us to flee to no other refuge, wash in no other fountain, build on no other foundation, and long for no other kingdom. We confess our ears are so quick to hear the things that we like and so quick to become deaf to anything we find uncomfortable. Now as we go to the book, we realize these words are alive. So make the book live to us. We realize these words are seed so plant them into the fertile soil of our souls. We realize these words are good pasture. So lead us, great shepherd, to feast in fields of truth. We come to the table with our hearts tender, our souls hungry, and our minds ready. Meet us and treat us with your presence. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We preach through books of the Bible at Faith Family Church. We've been walking verse by verse, week by week, through 1 Kings. This is our 10th week exegeting the book. We began with, who's got the kingdom? Chapter 1. Chapter 2, the transition Chapter 3 and 4, make a wish, any wish. Chapter 5 and 6, house building. Followed by moving day. Then a building dedication. The end of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, grand opening. Gold, 
and blood. Chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba. Chapter 11, the Peril of Drift. And today, the first half of chapter 12, our 10th sermon. One crown becomes two, a divided kingdom. One crown becomes two, a divided kingdom. It's been a united kingdom under Saul, a united kingdom under David, a united kingdom under Solomon. That all changes today. We witness the dividing of a kingdom with sorrow. This is a tearful passage. The golden period of Israel's history becomes the dark period of Israel's history. The glory days are over. The sad days are here. For years, the Jews considered the division of the nation as the greatest tragedy in their history. For 11 chapters, the kingdom has been united. That changes in chapter 12. Saul reigned for 40 years. David reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. That's 120 years the kingdom was united. That 120 years of unity cracks in this passage. For 120 years, only one man wore the crown. That ends today. One crown becomes two. The kingdom divides. This chapter is filled with what one historian calls kingdom crud. This is how the passage breaks down. A united kingdom assembles, verses 1 through 15. A divided kingdom disperses, verses 16 through 24. A united kingdom assembles, verses 1 through 15. A divided kingdom disperses, verses 16 through 24. I will scatter some take-homes throughout the sermon. These are truths that you need to take home and rest in. Now, let me catch you up in the narrative. King Solomon is dead. They've had his funeral. They've eulogized him. They've mourned his death. He's gone. Now, kingship in Israel was still new. They had only had three kings. And the idea of a succession plan wasn't clean and polished. There is a king in waiting, Solomon's son. It was announced he would take the throne. He would carry on the family business. But he knew it would not be a smooth transition. There are tensions during every transition. Tension permeates any kind of change, and it's no different here. Tension is in the air. And that becomes evident in verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. See, here's how I know there is tension. Rehoboam chose Shechem for the place to hold his installation service. They gathered to inaugurate him as king, not in Jerusalem, but in Shechem. He'll be crowned king, but not in the royal palace. He's not being coronated in Washington, D.C., but in Iowa. Why Iowa? Something is amiss. The rallying point is 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Rehoboam is attempting to procure the support of all 12 tribes to keep everything unified. He knows 10 of the 12 tribes have a grievance. Something stuck in their crawl. 
there was a crack between the northern tribes and the southern tribes, so Rehoboam picks a place meaningful for all tribes, Shechem. It's a step toward peace and unity between the north and the south. He, he's seeking endorsement from the northern tribes. Rehoboam is 41 years old when they crown him king. He will not reign 40 years like his father Solomon or 40 years like his grandfather David. He will reign a mere 17 years. That's about 16 years, 364 days longer than he should reign if you ask me. See, he was 41 years old when he took the throne. 41. How long did his dad reign? 40 years. His dad was the richest man on the planet. That means, that means Rehoboam's entire life was lived in luxury. He stayed in Israel's finest palace, ate Israel's finest dinners, wore Israel's finest clothes, experienced Israel's finest luxuries. He grew up with golden rattles and a golden crib. By the way, there are few children who can survive such wealth and prosperity and come out with humility and a strong work ethic. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. See, this boy had everything handed to him, including a united kingdom. How will he handle it? He's never had to work for anything, and now he has to work for unity. I, I guess I should just say it. Rehoboam is an idiot. Excuse my bluntness, but he was. Before Solomon died, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19. I will have to leave all my work to someone after me. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Solomon, you left it to an absolute fool. We are about to witness a young king's folly. Things will unravel quickly under his leadership. As soon as Rehoboam ascends to the throne, things go south. You know, Solomon wrote another book besides Ecclesiastes. He wrote Proverbs. He wrote that book to his son, Rehoboam. The whole first half of Proverbs is Solomon training his son how to lead well. The Proverbs have a royal dimension to them, and that makes sense now. Solomon was training his son to be the royal one, to be king. And we will find out if he listened. Rehoboam being crowned king has a rippling effect. We see one of the ripples in verse 2. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, now notice the parenthesis here, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam. Let's pause here, church. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they rhyme. This could get confusing. So let me help you differentiate the two men by giving each a nickname and each an action. Rehoboam, we're going to call him Ray. Every time Ray speaks in the passage, we do this. And say, oh, Ray. Oh, Ray, don't say that. Oh, Ray, don't listen to them. Oh, Ray, don't kill people. 
Having the wisest father in the world doesn't guarantee that you will exercise wisdom. Wisdom doesn't pass like DNA. Then we have Jeroboam. We're going to call him Jerry. And Jerry, when we see him in our passage, he's always coming to the rescue. Jerry to the rescue. Jerry has been in hiding since Solomon tried to kill him. But Solomon is dead now, and, and here comes Jerry to the rescue. There is a deep unrest among some of the tribes. A fermenting discontentment. The people send for Jerry and want him to be their representative. Apparently, coming to Shechem to hold the coronation was not enough. The northern tribes wanted some concessions from the new king. The coronation ceremony is the perfect place to be granted these concessions. Jerry is the spokesman. They give the speech as one big group, but Jerry is the one speaking for them. And he began speaking in verse 4. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us. And we will serve you. Before they accept him as king, they wanted a commitment that he would lower his heavy tax load and give relief on his harsh labor policies. New kings customarily granted their subjects concessions. So this was no unrealistic ask. They are simply asking for a lighter load. Not to sit on the beach, on a beach chair all day with a drink in their hand with a little umbrella in it. They are fully willing to follow, providing Ray would just lighten the load a bit. Your father made life hard on us. He worked us to the bone. The collar was tight. We're just asking you to loosen it a couple of notches. Alter the policies a little to give us some breathing room. Instead of 90 hours of, of work a week, how, how about 60? Instead of taxation at the rate of 70%, how, how about 58%? We have toiled like oxen under a heavy yoke. We have built this kingdom with the sweat of our brow and the strength of our back. You don't need the same hours and the same sweat from us anymore. That season has come to an end. Ray receives it, then tells them to go away for three days while he thinks about it. He takes the time to deliberate. He confers with advisors. Verse 6. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? Ray, <laughs> Ray visits the old grayheads, a group of counselors that served his father Solomon. These older men in their 70s and 80s were under David's reign and all of Solomon's reign. They advise the king in key moments. They are a godly, mature, seasoned advisory group. And they said to him, verse 7, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. You see, they advise Ray to be a servant leader. Be a servant to the people and the people will serve you. Be considerate of their needs 
and respond with compassion. Ray, exercise godly humility and use moderation and flexing power. They want Rehoboam to use kind words and to grant the relief the nation is requesting. Appease them. It's not in violation of any policies. This is what your father would have done. Now, church, Ray has been given good advice, seasoned counsel. And, and you might wonder, why do this when you mention his name? He seems like he's on a good path. Ray's flirtation with wisdom is short-lived. Verse 8. But Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Two sets of advisors. The older men and the younger men. The right counsel and the wrong counsel. The old bucks and the young bucks. Emphasizing their youth speaks of their inexperience. Ray will reject the wisdom of the elders in place of the advice of his friends. He bemoans listening to the older generation and sides with his contemporaries. Rejecting this wisdom shows him to be the fool of Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Ray must not have been listening when his father dropped this gold nugget on him. I think Ray was advice hopping. Do you, do you know what that is? You keep asking people for advice until one of them eventually tells you what you want to hear. Question, beloved. Where are you looking for wisdom? There are damaging sources of wisdom. Podcasts, some friends, online articles, YouTube videos, books, all giving you advice on parenting, marriage, life, singleness, finances, leadership, worldview. This passage is not saying old men are always wise and young men are always foolish. It's asking you a question. Why are you listening to people who aren't serving God's kingdom? Ray's inability to tell good advice from bad advice led to disaster. And it will do the same for you. You need to be very selective in who has your ear. Now that's to adults. Now to teenagers. Studies show that most of the time, teenagers are more influenced by their peers than their parents. Teenagers, your friends are dumb. It says that in 3 Kings. Whoever gets your ear, gets your heart. You know who Rehoboam never turns to for guidance? God. There is no record of him asking God like his grandfather David did. These youngsters will tell Ray the exact opposite advice of the older counselors. It is diametrically opposed to the seasoned counsel, and we find it in verse 10. 
And the younger men who had grown up with him said to Rehoboam, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you, light, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. They tell Ray, don't serve the people. The people are there to serve you. Don't appease anyone. Don't show compassion. Don't show concern. In fact, tell them it's going to be worse than before. Nothing tames like threatening. Throw some threats their way. My father had a leash on your neck. I will tighten it. My father levied taxes on you. I will levy more. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. Expect intense, painful consequences like a scorpion sting. However, scorpions in our text are not the animals you may be thinking of. But whips embedded with nails, metal shards, and broken glass. He whipped you, I will scourge you. I will intensify the brutality. I will be a cruel taskmaster. Tyrannical. Pharaoh-like. You think my father was a hardliner? You haven't seen anything yet. I am more of a man than him. I have a heavier hand. I'll beat you with chains. You want a softer yoke? I'll give you the opposite. In verse 10, these young advisors draw on their juvenile wit. They say, tell them your little finger is bigger than your father's thigh. Now this is not referring to the fact that Ray is physically gigantic. It's, the meaning is camouflaged in our Bible version, the ESV. They soften it. They bleep it out. My little finger in the original is literally my little thing. It is speaking of the male sexual organ. Not the hand, but a different part of the anatomy altogether. This is locker room talk. It is gutter speech. It is crude and rude. It's coarse language, vulgar and crass. This is adolescent bravado. I'm a more potent king than my father. I'm ten times the man he is. One commentator, Lightheart, said that if Israel feels raped by Solomon... Rehoboam plans to give them more of the same. For the people of Israel, everything is in limbo for three days. And the three days come to an end in verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. Listen. The king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. On the third day, Ray delivers a harsh message. A cruel response. He's rough with them. 
He adopted the youngster's counsel. He's cocky. I'm not going to reduce taxes. I'm going to raise them. I'm not going to make life easier. I will make it harder. You missed some dinners for working late. Now you will miss every dinner for working late. He's proud and insecure. His pig-headedness is put on full display. He chooses machoism over servantism. He puts unrealistic expectations on his people. The glorious kingdom of Solomon had come into the hands of a foolish, arrogant thug. He inflicts raw power over unwilling people. He's belligerent. Hearing their plea for relief, he increases their burden just like Pharaoh did. He's acting more like he's running Egypt than Israel. This is an inverted Exodus story. God's people are now the oppressors, not Egypt. And Jeroboam, Jerry, is like Moses and he's saying, let my people go. And where did Jeroboam come from? Where was he hiding out? Egypt. It's completely inverted. Someone from Egypt now saying, let my people go. Which leads us to our first take home. It matters how you lead people. It matters how you lead people. You can't be a bully. That's how Rehoboam led. Whatever gifts he had, he did not have the gift of relating to people and understanding their needs. This is a classic story of power in unworthy hands. Why does God put power in unworthy hands? Ray exercised a self-serving use of authority. This is power in the hands of a fool. Does God care how his people are led? He does. Some Christian leaders are more influenced by secular leadership models than a biblical one. They identify cruelty with strong leadership. There are tyrants leading churches, tyrants leading businesses, tyrants leading homes. Little tyrants always insisting on their own way. This is not just true for ancient kings, but for us. We live like little dictators. It's been said, some men will search long and hard to find a kingdom small enough where they can be king. Is that how your leadership finds expression? Throwing out ultimatums? Bull in a china shop? Bully leadership is not the way of Christ. They advised Ray to be a servant leader. They called him to servant leadership. Jesus said this plainly. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. He said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be servant to all. Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty six, 26, let the leader serve. Christ provides the model. Lead by example, not by coercion. This is biblical leadership. The, the wise old men recommended a model for kingship. Servant leadership. Ray would reject it in place of an arrogant authoritarian, authoritarian model. You should use your authority 
to secure the needs and welfare of the people under you. Matthew Henry writes, It is the duty of Christ's disciples to serve one another for mutual edification. A true leader leads by example, never asking others to do something that the leader is unwilling to do himself. R.C. Sproul adds, He does not seek leadership in order to have power and authority over others. He leads in order to do good for other people. Is the leadership function you perform, no matter how large or how small it might be, characterized by such service? Here is Ray again, not listening to the Proverbs of his father. His father warned him about this very moment, answering the people harshly. His father told him, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1 when you, when you receive an angry email, or someone comes at you, you're tempted to double down with the aggression. This is how most rulers of countries lead, and most rulers of businesses lead. It is natural. It is fleshly. Don't choose machoism over servantism. Don't be guilty of power in unworthy hands. Verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was, I absolutely love this phrase, <laughs> a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Rehoboam turned a deaf ear to the people, but God was behind all this. The Lord ordained it. This section ends with this powerful theological truth. I do not want you to get distracted by moralizing the text and, and thinking, oh, I only need to listen to old people. That is, that is not the point of the story. This is. The writer leaves us with no doubt that God is orchestrating these events. Rehoboam is completely responsible for his arrogance and foolishness. But this whole situation is originated in eternity and culminated in history. It, it, was, it was Charlie Spurgeon, old Spurge, who said this, The great, deep, mysterious providence of God was quietly working behind the folly and the domineering pride of this foolish man. Which leads us to our second take-home. God is not a helpless spectator in human history. God is not a helpless spectator in human history. You must view history from a divine perspective. There are flawed heroes and failed reforms, but a sovereign God behind it all. Now, let me illustrate this by talking about something that does not matter in eternity. I grew up a basketball fan of North Carolina, UNC. I watched them win the championship game in 2005, 2009, and 2017. I never watched UNC games with anyone else, 
Because frankly, you don't need to see your pastor going through that agony. Every four years or so, I will watch those championship games again. I will watch all three games even though I know what's going to happen. I know who wins. My team. But this time I can watch it with greater detail because I am not anxiety ridden. That's how you should go through life. You know who gets the victory. You know who wins. You've read Revelation. You know how this thing ends. If you, if you go through election seasons and wars and transitions at your job and transitions in your family filled with anxiety, then you are living like God is a helpless spectator in human history. God is not in heaven wringing his hands in dismay, lamenting his inability to achieve his purposes. The sovereign God will achieve everything he has set out to achieve. Let all hell rage. His plans are going to be fulfilled. God is not a helpless spectator in human history. These, as the text says, turn of affairs are brought about by the Lord. Which leads us to our third take home. God is at work in the midst of human folly. God is at work in the midst of human folly. Rehoboam's folly was predicted before it was fulfilled. His rigid stupidity was anticipated before it was exercised. A prophet, Ahijah, said it would happen before Solomon died. We have before us human folly and divine sovereignty. God did not violate Rehoboam's will. Ray made his own stupid decision. He's culpable for his stiff-necked behavior. No one forced Ray to follow the foolish counsel. This is stupidity under the sovereignty of God. God can work through foolishness without approving of it. Ray acted freely and God acted sovereignly. One scholar pointed out the fact that Rehoboam's decision led to the fulfillment of prophecy, did not make his choice any less sinful. God uses our decisions to achieve his purposes. We cannot blame anyone but ourselves for our sins, even though the Lord's sovereign plan works through these sins to achieve his greater purpose. This passage interweaves human foolishness and Yahweh's sovereignty. Yahweh's will is worked in the free actions of the players. Human stupidity is running loose, but it is on the leash of God's sovereignty. Human stupidity is running loose, but it is on the leash of God's sovereignty. And that bears relation to my sanity. When you see human stupidity at your job, in your city, within your family, in your nation, 
wherever human stupidity is running loose, don't you ever forget it is on the leash of God's sovereignty. Christian, make this specific. What has been troubling you? What is it in the family? What is it at the job? What is it in your life? What is it that has been troubling you? Do this exercise. Fill in the blank. Blank is on God's leash. And pray that and preach that to your heart every day. Blank is on God's leash. You will go insane unless you have this view. Human stupidity is on a leash held by an omnipotent and loving God. A united kingdom assembles, that's verses 1 through 15. A divided kingdom disperses, that's verses 16 through 24. Bible commentator Dale Ralph Davis points out that even though stupidity is under sovereignty, it's still sad. Rehoboam has blown it spectacularly. His pig-headedness split the kingdom. The united kingdom cracks down the middle. Rehoboam intended to intimidate them into submission, but instead drove them away. This will no longer be one nation but two. Two different flags, two different capitals, two different armies, two different Olympic teams. This was a divorce. Verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. To your tents, O Israel, was an ancient battle cry. It was a way of saying every man for himself. Every tribe for himself. Ray thought they would cower down by his rough talk, his, his tough bullying, but they rejected his kingship and looked for another. Here comes Jerry to save the day. Ray's choice to not listen to wise counsel fractures the political unity. They call his bluff. They go home in grim determination to fight back. Rehoboam is not overthrown completely, but his kingdom is severely reduced. It's no longer unified, but divided, and strongly so. Ten tribes with Jerry, and two tribes with Ray. Rehoboam, leading Judah, the southern two tribes. Jeroboam, leading Israel, the northern ten tribes. Now, I must pause here in the exposition because a change has taken place in this passage that could confuse you. So far in the Bible, Israel always represents the people of God. But that's not necessarily the case here. The ten northern tribes are now called Israel. 
but they are not really true Israel because God's promise of the Messiah will continue through the southern kingdom, the two tribes that Ray will lead called Judah. The two words all Israel in verse 16 refers to the ten tribes led by Jeroboam. They reject David's line. The line the Messiah will come out of. And you will notice in the verse they speak in a derogatory way of David. What portion do we have with David? You can hear the venom in their speech. Now some read this passage and say, frankly, if I were an Israelite, it would be hard to choose which king to follow. Maybe even you're saying, Kyle, I'm uncomfortable with this story. Where is the good side? Well, there is stupidity and abuse on both sides. There are wrong choices made by both sides. But God's promise is with the two southern tribes. Because the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, because they reject God's king, they will fall under the judgment of God. Ray is a descendant of King David. Jerry is not. Jerry has no royal blood running through his veins. The divided kingdom disperses. Ten tribes go with Jerry. Two tribes go with Ray. Many commentators think the ten tribes, they were taxed and they were put under forced labor, but the other two were not. And so the ten tribes split. What made them split, church? The yoke. The yoke made them reject God. By rejecting David's line, they are stomping on the promises of God about the soon coming Messiah. By rejecting the house of David, you are rejecting the way of salvation and that's an incredibly poor decision whether they make it or you make it. Non-Christian, I've talked to some of you this morning, non-Christian, has some hard thing in your life made you reject God's king? Some tragedy, some death, some disability, some abuse, some yoke made you reject God's Messiah? Well, then I give you take home number four. Friend, you can't reject God just because you've had a tight yoke around your neck. You can't reject God just because you've had a tight yoke around your neck. You can keep talking about the yoke, blaming the yoke for why you are not following God. But you are accountable for your decision even if you've had the yoke. There is no yoke tight enough that would be worth you rejecting God's means of salvation. No cancer painful enough. No hurt deep enough. No embarrassment sting enough. How could a loving God allow me to go through this? What? How could you, the creation, reject the creator? How could you, Israel, reject the God of Israel? I have no answers for your yoke, but I know it is not wasted. Not one second of it will be wasted. God will make the taskmasters pay in eternity, and he will make the yoke right. If you entrust your time and the yoke to the hands of a sovereign God, 
and you follow him despite the yoke, and you sing, though you slay me, still I will follow. You have that deep-seated faith that every tear will be worth it all. Then you can worship in the yoke. You can allow this yoke to push you to Christ and not push you away from Christ. Well, I, I can't see. I can't see what God is doing in my yoke. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean there isn't an eternal weight of glory being worked for you through the yoke you are forced to endure. Let's jump back in the narrative. The northern contingent, the ten tribes, leave Rehoboam. And Ray, he is not one to be shunned. He doesn't like their reaction. He fully intends to follow through with his threat. So he sends some muscle to put pressure on the ten tribes. He actually sent the guy who held the scorpion whip and yelled at him, Deal with their unrest. Deal with their rebellion. Verse 18 he goes to deal with it. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who is a taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. That sounds like a good idea, Ray. Rehoboam seriously misjudged the situation. He underestimated their rage, their hostility. They took the muscle and ripped it. They stoned his taskmaster. And this caught Ray off guard. He panicked. He fled for his life to Jerusalem. He's in full retreat. For the first time, Ray realizes his youthful advisors didn't understand the gravity of the situation. It seems King Ray narrowly escaped the same fate. Verse 20. And when all Israel heard... Now, church, who does all Israel represent? The ten northern tribes. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Beloved, this is where one crown became two. And for those of you who are accountants, you mathematicians, you may say, wait, it doesn't add up. Jerry has ten tribes. It says Ray only has one tribe here, Judah. Where is the missing tribe? That tribe is Benjamin, which is basic, basically absorbed into Judah and considered one. Verse 21. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. With the revolt of the northern tribes, Ray, still operating in knee-jerk mode, assembles an army. He's unwilling to surrender this territory so easily. He amasses his troops. It's the enticing lure of military might to get his way. His response is to reassert military power. To bring out more scorpions. More whips with sharp objects embedded in them. He will, will restore order through warfare. All he knows is intimidation and raw power to get his way. God's people, 
are turning on themselves. They start to view each other as the enemy, the competition. Ray declares war. He decides on an invasion. 180,000 warriors ride out on horses and chariots. That's the size of the entire active duty Marine Corps. 180,000 soldiers, that's basically Fort Campbell times six or seven. That's a lot of people. The stage is set for an all-out civil war. They ride out when suddenly, verse 22, but the word, word of the Lord came to Shammai, the man, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. God says, lay down your arms. Shockingly, Rehoboam heeds it. He listens to the word of God. Something he will not be known for doing. This is the second time he has listened in this chapter. First to bad counsel, now to divine counsel. God restrains the stubborn king. Temporarily, he stops the carnage. Bloodshed averted, postponed, really. Yahweh intervenes. This is clearly the footprint of grace. The word of God has power to change the course of history. Proverbs 21.1 A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Israel has been irreparably split. Ray now hears these words from God. This is my doing. It is my doing. Ray may have thought it was Jeroboam's doing or his own doing. Who split the kingdom? Rehoboam did. True statement. Who split the kingdom? Jeroboam did. True statement. Who split the kingdom? Solomon did. His sin led to it. We know that from the previous chapters. True statement. Who split the kingdom? God did. True statement. God allowed the kingdom to be divided, but not destroyed. Beloved, I've given you four previous take-homes. In addition to those, I want to give you three final take-homes before you head home. Take-home five. You can fight for good causes and still bust hell wide open. You can fight for good causes and still bust hell wide open. I know some of you. I know most of you, but I know some of you very well, and I know your tendencies and where you lean. And you may feel compassion for Jerry. I mean, Jerry is just trying to lead people out of forced labor. The northern tribes are succeeding from their Union with the southern tribes over the issue of a heavy yoke. Look at Jeroboam fighting for freedom. Fighting the good fight. Jerry is like Moses. He's saying, let my people go. 
Kyle, I like this guy who fights for good. I want to use him as a sermon illustration. I want to buy my kids a book about him. The problem, friend, is not that he doesn't fight for good. The problem is he doesn't fight for God. You can fight for a good cause and all the while reject God's king. I fight illiteracy. I fight worldwide hunger. I fight for equality. I fight for those enslaved. You can do all that fighting and still go to hell. God views all of Jeroboam's work as filthy rags because it is done without a love for him. Hey, freedom fighter, culture warrior, you reject God's king and you will spend eternity in hell. I don't care what you accomplished on earth. You must repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your soul's salvation. Now to the sixth take home. When God's people are turning in on themselves and division ensues, it really does break the heart of God. When God's people are turning in on themselves and division ensues, it breaks the heart of God. When God's people start viewing each other as the enemy, the competition, it's a severe crack in the unity. This isn't the only time division wrecked God's people. It happened all throughout the New Testament epistles. The New Testament writers focus so much on unity in the body because there are so many little things that can divide us. Politics, sports, preferences, personalities, third-tier differences. If you are disgruntled with someone in the church body, deal with it immediately. Do not allow it to fester. Do not allow it to grow. Bitterness will creep in. When, when the unity among God's people cracks, well, the Old and New Testament shows us it's a sad scene. Take home seven. The final take home. What Rehoboam sought to do, Jesus will do. He will unite the people into one flock to himself. What Rehoboam sought to do, Jesus will do. He will unite the people into one flock to himself. The history of the divided kingdom leads us to the reality of a uniting king. When we look at this small story in God's giant unfolding story, we see God's mercy peeking out behind the clouds. View this story through the lens of biblical theology. Unlike Rehoboam, Jesus will not scourge his people. He will be scourged for his people. He will face the scorpion. 
He was beat with a scorpion. A leather strapped embedded with shards of glass. It ripped the skin off his back. Jesus is the king the people had been longing for. He didn't merely face the human scorpion. He also faced the divine scorpion. The scorpion of God's wrath. The scorpion we deserved was laid on him. In our story, when Israel came back the third day, they heard bad news. Harsh news. Rehoboam delivers bad news after three days. Jesus delivers good news after three days. For on the third day after facing the human and divine scorpions, up from the grave he arose. Listen. What the people wanted with Rehoboam is fully true with Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. There is nothing Rehoboam can do that Jesus will not undo. Rehoboam will not tear the kingdom where it is impossible to stitch back together. Jesus is the better Ray, the better Rehoboam. You may think your life is riddled with gaping cracks that can't be caught or disgusting sins that can't be forgiven. Cracked lives and cracked kingdoms, that's why God sent King Jesus. He died for all the times that we refused to serve. All the times that we bullied to get our way. All the times that we were Ray. Jesus is the king who brings us together and unifies us. Father, you are clothed in splendor and majesty. We bow before you. We see in our text man's inability to rule himself and the world. We need a king because we are all unfaithful kings. We, like Ray, have failed, so we need a Jesus. Thank you for sending your perfect, sinless son to pay the price for our wicked sin. Amen.